If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you weren't here last week, maybe you were on a, on a holiday for Labor Day or whatever the case might be, we are in uh, the Ten Commandments, which is really the beginning of a series within a series of serieses that we've been doing in the book of Exodus um, that has led us to this point. Two years ago, uh, the first sermon I uh, delivered to you was on uh, Delivered. <laughs> it was a series about Exodus and God's deliverance of his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then last year, we took a, a closer look at the, the chapters leading up to this point, and we called that series Approaching Sinai. And here we are at Sinai, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, and we are slowing down for this series to address one commandment at each message and one overview question about the law in general and about the Ten Commandments in particular each Sunday. So last Sunday, the overview question was, why study the Ten Commandments? And just very briefly, if you weren't here, we said that first, they are foundational to biblical ethics. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament have something to say, something to draw upon from the Ten Commandments. In addition, they are central to historic Christian teaching. Maybe you were in uh, Matt Toomes' Sunday school class about uh, the, the history of the church, and I just want to inform you that the history of the church included solid teaching about the Ten Commandments. And then the third reason we said that we should study the Ten Commandments is because they're neglected. A survey that I quoted last week said that 14% of Americans can quote the Ten Commandments. It's only 14%. And then I made everyone nervous when I said, get out a sheet of paper because we're going to see if we can beat the percentage in here. Of course, we didn't do that. But one of the reasons why we're studying this uh, series is because I don't want that to be true of us. Uh, We ought to know the Ten Commandments because, fourthly, they reflect the character of God. And that that reason why to study the Ten Commandments is also uh, a springboard into our overview question today. And that is, who spoke the Ten Commandments? Now, that's an easy question. It's a little on the nose. Hopefully, every man, woman, boy, and girl in this uh, sanctuary today could answer that question. God spoke the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you look at verse 1 in your Bibles of Exodus chapter 20, it says, And God spoke all these words. Okay, so that's the short answer to the question. But I want us to take four considerations away from this fact that God himself spoke the ten words. These ten words, God himself spoke them. First of all, uh, that God spoke them says that they are unique. God not only um, spoke them in the way that he typically speaks to us, which is through a mediator, through prophets, apostles, we have the word of God, but God spoke in a way that everyone that was at Sinai could hear audibly the deliverance of these 10 words. It's unique in scripture to find that the people could hear an audible voice. They saw no form, which is important to our study of the second commandment today, but they heard. In fact, that's what God had told Moses he would do in Exodus 19. I think it's around verse 9. And then later at the end of chapter 20, the people approach Moses and say, make it stop. It, it, the, the delivery was so terrifyingly uh, overwhelming. Peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, this deliverance and the hearing of God's voice. They said, you be a mediator for us. Have God speak to you, and then you tell us what to do. And so the rest of the law, 
all the civil law, all the ceremonial law that's given, everything that goes beyond here, God spoke through Moses. He, he gave his word to Moses, and Moses delivered to the people. But these ten words, they heard God speak. Secondly, as we consider that God spoke these words, we ought to consider that they are a complete set. God spoke these words and no more. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 22. We read, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. There's that audible delivery. And he added no more. He added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Moses' note there that he added no more has an implication to it, that these are a set. They go together, like sitting in a classroom. And, you know, you go to your teacher's class and they have a set of class rules. Uh, You go to maybe a a youth camp or you go away and you're under someone's authority and they say, here are the, the standards. This is the set of rules. And just imagine for a moment, if our world would listen to just these 10 words, if we would obey just these 10 words, he added no more. Imagine the world we would live in. You wouldn't have to lock your doors. You wouldn't be afraid of anything if everyone would obey just these 10 words. They are complete. Thirdly, as we consider that God spoke them, we consider their permanence. Their permanence. Not only did God speak these words, we are told in Scripture that he inscribed these 10 words on tablets of stone. And that is symbolic for their permanence, their endurance. In chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, in verse 5, we read that Moses came and turned, he turned and came down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that he had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. These tablets were inscribed by the very finger of God, showing their significance and showing their enduring character. And then Moses says they were placed in the Ark of the Testimony. Now, we don't have a lot of time to dive into this today, but just remember that in the tabernacle, in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled amongst his people on earth in the Old Covenant. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence with his people. And in the ark were the tablets. They were a reflection of the character of God. And so here in the ark, when someone would come in, the high priest, and at that only once a year, on the day of atonement, he would come in and he knew the God that had delivered these 10 words. This was the God that he was coming to worship and to present sacrifice for, and he had to make atonement by blood to enter in because God in his holiness, as represented by the ten words in the tablets in the ark, had a mercy seat over which the blood had to be sprinkled because his wrath would break out if the priest did not come by blood. That will become significant as we consider this later in our our sermon today. But the point is this, that the permanence of God's delivery of the law taught us about the character of God. A.W. Pink says, The revelation of God at Sinai was to serve for all coming ages as the grand expression of God's holiness and the summation of man's duty. Those ten words, and they alone, were written by the finger of God 
upon tablets of stone, and they alone were deposited in the holy ark for safekeeping. Thus, in the unique honor conferred upon the Decalogue, that is the ten words, we may perceive its paramount importance in the divine government. These ten words are significant. And so we consider, fourthly, as we think of God himself delivering these words, that they reflect his character. I wanted to share more with you today, but there was so much I wanted to share. I'm going to truncate this section to just three statements with a little bit of commentary on them. When we consider that the Ten Commandments are a reflection of the character of God, I want you to hear these three statements. Uh, I'm summarizing a book by David Jones, which is an introduction to biblical ethics. His argument, and I think it's exactly right, is this. The law is not good, first, because God spoke it. We cannot say the law is good simply because God spoke it. That is the authority over law paradigm. It's like God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that's good if you know the God of the Bible. If you know the rest of Scripture that says God is a good God. But what if God was a capricious and whimsical God that commanded something that would just be morally abhorrent to you? morally abhorrent to us, or whimsical, like you have to hop on your right foot all the time everywhere you go. Just because God said it does not make it good, because then you forget that the goodness of God is involved in the delivery, because he could have commanded things that we don't think are good. That's a problem. But the other side of this coin is equally troubling. The law is not good, secondly, simply because God points to it and says, That's truth with a capital T. That's good with a capital G. Like there is some objective, good and right and true way to live outside of God. That would be authority under law. That that God is saying, uh, do these things because they are the good in the world. It would make the law God, so to speak. And it would question the authority and the sovereignty and the power of the one who is delivering these commands. And so you are on the horns of a dilemma. This dilemma that I am presenting to you is not a new one. In fact, it was Euthyphro's dilemma. And if you want to study more about that, look into that book that I recommended. But the dilemma is, is the law good because God says it? Or is the law good because God points to it and says it's good? And the answer is neither. Hear this. Thirdly, the law is good and authoritative Because God is good and authoritative. God is both good in his deliverance of the law, and he is powerful enough to deliver it. So we say it is the authority is law paradigm. And here's the key. If all of that was a little bit philosophical for you, for some of you students, for some of you kids that are out there, listen very carefully. This is why David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you have I sinned. Wait a minute, I thought you committed adultery. David says, I sinned against you because the law is a reflection of God, a reflection of his character, his goodness and his authority is revealed in the deliverance of the law. 
And so when we sin against the law, we sin against God because the law reflects God's character. Again, uh, this is important to us as we study, and it will come into play at the end of the sermon today when we consider the one who was obedient to the law in every way. But I get ahead of myself. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of Exodus chapter 20. And each Sunday, we're going to read all 10 of these words, beginning in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We started a little tradition last week, and we're going to continue it this week. If you weren't here, uh, we are going to do a little bit of catechism work. As I said, the Ten Commandments were in instrumental in the teaching ministry of the church for centuries. And I want to model for you what it would be like in your own home or with um, some people that maybe you're teaching to use a tool like a catechism to instruct and teach about the Ten Commandments. And so we pick up with question number six in the New City Catechism, and it asks, how can we glorify God? And I want you to answer out loud, by loving him and by obeying his commands and law. And what does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, now before we do this one, you see a blank? These are going to increase every week. So that's last week's commandment, okay? Hint, hint, it's you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so what is the law of God stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day. Go on to the next slide, Grace. Yeah, the fill in the blank was there. Okay. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Now, this is the part where the the catechism helps you give a little bit of uh, explanation of the commands. And this is the children's answer, okay? This is the simple answer to these questions. But what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know God as the only true God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence. Before we go to the next one, just stay on uh, one, two, and three. When we do this, um, with no offense to anybody who works there or shops there, uh, we answer that we avoid all Dollar Tree, okay? Uh, It just helps us remember uh, the second one, but anyway, avoid all Dollar Tree. So it's today's commandment, right? All idolatry. All right. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in worship of God. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother. What does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate our neighbor. Seventh, that we live purely and faithfully. And eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else. And what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone. That's, we have a little rhythm there. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone. Okay? Now, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Well, did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt and unable to keep God's law. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. Leave it right there, Grace. Do you see the nature of God? If we we know the law well, we will know God well. This is important to us. It teaches us about who God is and who we are in light of who he is, sinful and thus our need of a Savior, which is why every Sunday these commands will point us to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and the one who kept the law of God perfectly. All right, thank you for doing that. Parents, if you were not here last Sunday and you would like to take one of the little kids' versions of these catechisms, there are still a few on the um, the little things there on the sound booth that you can pick up. And then there's also a New City Catechism in the Elder Book Nook. If you're an adult and you want the adult answers and other scriptures that go along with it, the elders recommend these to you. Now, in the time that remains today, I want us to consider the second commandment. The second commandment. And I have four things to say about it. First, that the prohibition against idolatry, you shall not make for yourselves an idol, that prohibition is comprehensive. It covers anything, anywhere. Read it with me in verses 4 and 5. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. God says, don't worship anything, don't make anything, any likeness, anywhere, above, on earth, below. It kind of buttons it up, doesn't it? This is a comprehensive prohibition. And I would argue the reason why is because we are so good at finding ways to wander into idolatry. The reason the prohibition is comprehensive is because we are good at finding ways for our hearts to wander into idolatry. As I was studying these, um, uh, these ten words, there was a commentator, Dwayne Stewart, that had a, a list of things about idolatry in ancient Israel. And as I was considering them, I was thinking, you know, there really is nothing new under the sun. Idolatry was and still is these various adjectives. Let me share a few of them with you. First of all, uh, idolatry back then was guaranteed, so to speak. You know, you make this thing, you put it in your pocket, and you've got your God on a leash, so to speak. You've got control over what your God will and won't do and where he will or will not be. It, It gave you this sense of control over the gods. And I'm not sure if this is a one-to-one correlation, but I thought of, in our day, the idea of name-it-claim-it theology. Maybe you've heard of this, where, you know, you just say what you're expecting God to do, and God will do it for you. Our God is free and sovereign, and yes, we ought to plead with and pray that he would act and move. But God is not under our control, like made in our likeness and, and doing everything that we say, Uh, functionally, if you were the one that could name it and claim it, you would be God, right? Then there's the idea that idolatry in ancient Israel was selfish. The only thing that idols could not do was feed themselves. Well, this kind of makes sense because it's like wood and stone and metal, and it's a little silly to think that an idol could, but that was the thing that you had to do uh, to, to get the idol going, to get his juices flowing, right? You would eat in front of it, which is kind of fun and convenient and indulgent. We'll get to that later. But you eat, and then the idol is getting fed as you eat the meat in front of it. And it was like a quid pro quo. You eat, and then the idol's going to do for you something to help you out. So it might help you with your crops. It might help you with uh, fertility or anything like that. And so you eat, and it will do this for you. And the more you eat, the more it will give back. You following? It's a selfish thing, right? Because the more I give to this idol— then the more it's supposed to satisfy me and give me something in return. And again, without uh, making anyone in particular feel like this is hitting you, uh, it always tingles when you get poked in the idol, so uh, this may may or may not be your idol. But keeping up with the Joneses, uh, the house, the car, the, the country club dues, whatever it might be, the constant feeding of this thing, it's like, if I just give and give a little bit more, and keep this lifestyle, or keep paying this thing, then it's going to make me feel uh, satisfied, or uh, have the status I'm supposed to have, or give me what I'm looking for. We think the more we give, the more we will get, and so often, actually every time, we find ourselves disappointed and unsatisfied by our idols. Idolatry in ancient Israel was ubiquitous, There were temples to Baal and Asherah poles on every corner, it would seem. You didn't have to wander far to participate in idolatry in ancient Israel. And I would just argue that today, again, 
without saying that these are idols, they can be, or they can facilitate idolatry, and they are ubiquitous. There is a reason we call them iPhones, because I can give vent to anything I want. When I want it, I can look it up. Oh, how much does that new pair of shoes cost? How much does this cost? Or I really want to know more about my sports team, or I really want to see about this. And immediately we can, boom, we can be zapped into a portal, and they're everywhere. Everywhere you can give vent to your idolatrous passions. Our hearts are prone to worship, and sometimes we get on a tear, and we will spend hours and hours researching, looking, finding, thinking about anything but God. D.L. Moody said, Satan doesn't care what we worship as long as we just don't worship God. Idolatry in Israel's time was very normal. Uh, The Israelites were the only ones that weren't going around worshiping idols if they were true to God's word. And I would just say it still is today. We face a tide, a tidal wave of cultural secularism. I always struggle with that word. We face mounting pressure all around us. We are not normal to worship the one true God. And so idolatry was normal. It was also attractive to the eyes, pleasing to the senses, uh, uh, incense and visual artistry and things that would draw one in. Now, God is not anti-art. This command is not to say that God doesn't care about art. In fact, he prescribed art in the tabernacle. Uh, There were pomegranates and palm trees and various things and artistry. People were wise and craftsmen and able to build and create. God is not anti-art, but he is very anti-idolatry when the thing becomes the thing that we worship. And so I would say even today, the theater of sports, fashion, cinema, again, not in and of itself necessarily idolatrous, but boy, is it got a pretty wrapping around it. And we can be sucked in to give our worship to those things that are underneath that wrapping instead of worshiping God. Idolatry was and still is indulgent. We've already mentioned the food thing, right? Like it was a barbecue fest. It was the original tailgate to to eat uh, barbecue and meat before these idols. And even today, will not the food and alcohol industry very gladly let you indulge yourself? Supersize me. I want more, more and more food, more and more to drink, more and more. And every time we do not find our satisfaction therein, but we can be prone to indulgence. And then lastly, idolatry was and still is erotic. Idolatry led to a lot of sexual sin. Uh, I won't go into all the details, but there was an idea that the uh, sexual sin in front of the, um, the idols would produce a crop because it would get Baal and Asherah uh, to have sex, and that was what produced the crop. And so, even so today, I would argue that the greatest idol in our culture today is the sexual revolution. It will brook no rivals the autonomy to have sex when, where, how, with whomever I want is the number one idol, I think, in our culture today. And so we are prone to idolatry. John Calvin said the heart, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. So in any variety of ways, we are prone to wander away from the worship of God. You see, the first commandment was concerned with the who of worship. Worship God alone. 
The second command is concerned with the how. God is not only interested that we worship him, but that we worship him rightly. This is so important because even the giving of, um, or the, the golden calf as an example, the people of Israel, they would have argued when they were worshiping the golden calf that they were worshiping God through it. They threw a feast to Yahweh. That, that's what Exodus 32 says. And they, they kind of got their signals crossed because they, they knew they were worshiping Yahweh or they thought they were, but in reality, they were not worshiping God the way he commands to be worshiped. And so it matters not just who, but how we worship God. But secondly, as we consider the second commandment, we see not only is the prohibition of idolatry comprehensive, but the reason for the prohibition is jealousy. The reason God gave this command is he is a jealous God. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy gets a bad rap, and probably it gets it's due for most of it what it is. But jealousy is not always bad. This is the best kind of jealousy one can have. It's a zealous love for his covenant spouse. God loves us with his whole heart, and he is jealous when we chase after other things. I heard one person say that idolatry is like a woman telling her husband, well, I have this other man around to think about you. Idolatry. God cares about our relationship with him. He has a zealous love for us. We would not condemn a husband. In fact, we would be, we would be um, outraged if we told a husband up here, your wife has been cheating on you. And he's like, oh, well, you know, those things happen. It's not a big deal. He never loved her. And we know that by his response. But if he responds with a jealous love for his spouse, that's a good thing. God loves his people. It's evident to us, I just think of a number of passages, but uh, time fails us to, to, you know, view all of them. But think of Zephaniah chapter 3. Many of you, this is one of your favorite verses in the Bible. Zephaniah three seventeen, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Think of this God who loves us so much. And he knows that our propensity to idolatry will end in our dissatisfaction. If we chase after these things, they will never fulfill us like he knows he can. And so his love for us is demonstrated by his commanding that we worship him alone. Number three, we see about the second commandment that the consequences of disobedience are sweeping. The consequences of disobedience are sweeping. Look at verse five again. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. At first glance, this passage could appear to be unfair. Like, why is God punishing these so-called innocent children and grandchildren for the sins of their fathers? But we have to look a little closer to see that the passage says very clearly that he visits the iniquity on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God does not 
ever condemn the innocent. There are passages in Ezekiel that speak to this, this idea of uh, bearing the iniquity of the sins of our fathers. That being said, we all know of the consequences of idolatry and sin. And we can think of generations that have been hurt and challenged and uh, set in the wrong direction because of uh, the, the choices of a parent, whether it be alcoholism or gambling or other things that can really lead someone astray. It can be passed down, so to speak, from generation to generation. It does have an impact. But the Bible is teaching here that those children of the parents who have gone off and wandered away from the worship of God, cannot use their parents as an excuse. In the same way, we cannot say, you know, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. We can't just tell God, well, I'm just an idolater because my parents, they're so bad. No, we all stand on our own feet, and it's evident here that the sins of the fathers have become the sins of the sons. They hate God, which is ironic, right? Because when you think of people that say that they're trying to worship God through this idol, they would argue that they love God. The Israelites would have said, no, we love Yahweh, and that's why we're worshiping him this way. I can think of idolatry in our own county, of people who venerate images and icons and maybe even the crucifix. They bow before it, or they light a candle to this or that or the other thing, and they think they're worshiping God. They think they love God by doing so. But the Bible says very clearly that idolatry is hatred towards God. God cares very deeply that we worship him rightly. And I would also argue that idolatry is also damaging to us as humans. And God knows that. And we'll get into some of that when we consider what it is to be made in God's image. So, you cannot claim to love God and bow to an idol. And the consequences are sweeping to generations of families. We all know of those where that has happened, but there is good news. Maybe you are here today, and you're a part of a family that has struggled with um, some sort of sin or some sort of idol in your past. And the good news is that while the consequences of idolatry are sweeping, God's mercy and love are unending. God's mercy and love never end. The comparison here, for those of you who are math people, is a ratio of three or four to a thousand. You you see the the quote here in in verse six, if you read, it says, God will show steadfast love to thousands. My my text has a, a footnote. It says the thousandth generation. That is the correct translation, I believe. He will show his steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And, and it's not as though the, the, the love and the, the steadfast love of the mercy of God will end at generation 1001. No, this mercy is being depicted for us uh, with figurative language. I want to quote for you Dane Ortland, who writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, quote, God's goodness will be passed down in a way that inexorably swallows up all our sins. His mercies travel down to a thousand generations, far eclipsing the third and the fourth. And this doesn't mean that God's goodness shuts off with generation number 1001. It's God's own way of saying, there is no termination date to my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace toward you. You can't outrun my mercy. 
You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. I think of the song that says, Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And when you consider the just punishment that God will mete out for our sin, God is eager to tell us, no, but his mercy overflows. Like to the thousandth generation, he is going to bless and love those who love him. How does the mercy of God show itself in the whole of Scripture? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, writes, quote, God's mercy swims to us as through the blood of Christ. That is so good. God's mercy swims to us as through the blood of Christ. Okay, let's put that all back together. And let's remember that no one can enter into God's presence without blood of a sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sins. And yet, Jesus was able to satisfy God's wrath with his own blood. And he entered the Holy of Holies, Hebrews tells us, by his own blood. And he made a sacrifice for sins that atoned the wrath of God. And he he shed his blood to cover the mercy seat over the ark. That God's presence being represented by his law, Jesus fulfilled the law and shed his blood for our sins to tear down the veil, to make open the way for us to enter into God's presence. And so when we consider Christ's blood, when we consider Christ's obedience, we have to consider lastly about the second commandment, that the image of God is crystal clear in Christ. The image of God, don't make an image, don't make any image of anything in any likeness to represent me, God says. Why? Because the image of God is crystal clear in Christ. God already had an image Let's just pump the brakes a little and remember Genesis 1.27. The Bible says that God created him in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. The image of God, you want to look around and see an image of God? It's supposed to be us. You just can't make the image of God. You can only be the image of God. And yet, Adam failed to image God properly. How would he have reflected? How would he have radiated the glory of God? By obeying his law. Because the law is a reflection of God's character. And so if Adam had been obedient to the commands God given, he would have reflected God's character. And the glory of God would have been passed down through all generations and would have covered the earth as the water covers the sea. And yet Adam failed. And in his disobedience, he He failed to live up and to image God properly. And so God, in his loving kindness and his mercy, sent Jesus to be the image for us. Crystal clear. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. If we had been able to keep the law, we would have reflected the glory of God. But the law was weakened by our sinfulness. So God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's you, church. That's you and me. The, The righteous requirement could be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hear this. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, the the Spirit descended upon him. He was Spirit-filled to the nth degree, and he gave glory to God, and by the Spirit, he obeyed the law in a way that you and I never could. Perfectly, obediently, reflecting the character of God, imaging forth God to the world. You want to know what it looks like to be the image of God? Look at Jesus. Look at his healing. Look at his mercy. Look at his kindness. Look at his wrath. Look at his justice. Look at Jesus, and you will see God. Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The image of God is crystal clear, which is why there could not be any other image. It was forbidden because God knew that he would send Jesus to be the image bearer for us, and to remake us into his likeness. You see, we have been sinful by birth, guilty at birth, but, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we can have his perfect obedience. We can have his robes of righteousness covering us so that we can enter into his presence. And so we consider Romans 5.19. We've talked about Adam. We've talked about Christ. And Paul makes the comparison. He says, as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's all of us, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Who is that? Those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus' righteousness can be yours by faith. When you stand before God, it will not be on your own merits. You won't come before God and you say, why should you be in my presence and come into heaven? And you say, well, I was really good. I obeyed the Ten Commandments. I never uh, murdered and I never committed adultery. No, because you have failed and you know it. If you, if you reflect on these Ten Commands, you know yourself a sinner. But you can come into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his obedience. It's not just his death for sin. It was his obedience for our righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it is an alien righteousness. It is not our own. But we can have Christ's righteousness by faith. So today... In closing today, I invite you, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, to do so today. Not just in his substitutionary death on the cross, that he died to pay the penalty for your sins, but because you know, by studying these Ten Commandments, that you yourself are prone to idolatry. You yourself are prone to hating others, to not living purely. How many of you have told a lie? Don't raise your hands. (laughs) We've all done these things, and we all need a Savior. And Jesus Christ is a perfect Savior for you if you will place your faith and trust in his life of obedience and his death for sinners like you and me.